Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here. I want to welcome you to our time tonight. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Hebrews chapter 11. If you do not have a Bible, know that there's some provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, just grab one on the ta- off the table in the foyer. Let that be our gift to you. Find your way to Hebrews chapter 11. As last week, we kick-started a new series titled Stories of Faith. And we're taking some time together to explore the stories found and cataloged in Hebrews chapter 11, these stories that are strung together and bound together by the theme of faith. And what they all share in common, as we noted last week, is that each of these stories represent lives of faith that bear witness to the faithfulness of God and the forging of a glorious future. And so last week, we identified a couple of dynamics of faith that we want to hold on to as we take this journey together. We said, one, that faith lives towards what is longed for. And by that definition, every person on the planet lives by faith. Everyone is longing for some type of future, and they're living towards that future. And as they move into the future, faith is required. Faith is involved. Faith involves living towards what we are longing for. But we also said it's not just living towards what we're longing for. It's living in light of what we are longing for. It's as we're making decisions right now, we're making decisions in light of the future we desire, the future that we long for. But what it means for a Christian, a follower of Jesus, as we think about these dynamics of faith, is that you and I are not stepping into a future that we have to create for ourselves. That we're not desiring a future that is the figment of our own imaginations, that we have to work really hard to bring about and to usher in to being a reality. No, what we are doing is we are moving forward with faith that God is forging a future for his people, the foundations of which can't be shaken, the foundations of which are secure and stable and substantial. So we move towards the future that God has promised us, the future that God has secured for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so each of these stories of faith are going to hearken towards that reality in some way, shape, or form. And the first story we come to in Hebrews chapter 11 is referred to in verse 4. And it's the story of a guy named Abel. And his story is set in contrast with his brother Cain. And since it's a short verse, we'll read it again. Verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which... He, referring to Abel, was commended, he was affirmed, he was favored, he was blessed, he was received as righteous, he was declared righteous, better yet. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And then I love this line, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's story of faith left a legacy that continues to speak and to reverberate and to make an impact in the generations of God's people from that moment forward, still happening today, and it will continue long after you and I are gone if Christ has not yet returned. It's a powerful story dealing with the legacy of one guy's faith. What he left behind was a story that continues to speak from the grave. Now, one of the things about um, glaciers in the northern ocean waters that are currently receding and they're kind of melting, one of, the, one of the things that is happening as these glaciers are receding is that they're revealing 
artifacts that uh, they've collected and kind of absorbed into themselves throughout the ages. And some of those artifacts include (laughs) the remains of human beings. So that in 1991, there was found a 5,000-year-old mummified mountaineer discovered in the receding glaciers in the northern oceans. But not only are they finding people, there's hundreds of other archaeological objects that have turned up, everything from medieval crossbows, that'd be fun to come across, my son would get a kick out of that, to bolts and tools, to Roman coins and currencies. They've even revealed a pair of socks that date about 2,600 years, a pair of socks that somebody was wearing a long time ago. And then this past July, there was an employer of the, a Swiss skiing company who came across a, the remains of a couple that had gone mission, missing in 1942. This couple had gone missing in 1942, but they were found fully dressed with their warm wartime identity cards, with their backpacks on, with an empty bottle, a pocket watch, and a book. And then most recently in the Alps, scientists discovered a type of lunchbox that was revealed as a result of these receding glaciers. All of these receding glaciers are revealing artifacts, legacies left behind of lives lived long ago. You know, there's a day when you and I will recede from this world, right? We will recede from the world in which we are in right now. And and when we do, what artifacts are we going to leave behind? What artifacts will be left behind when you and I recede from this world? There was a Columbia researcher by the name of Sheena Lyongar who says that the average human being will make about 70 decisions every single day. And if you add that up, that's about 25,500 decisions every year. Then you factor in about a 70-year lifespan and you consider the number of decisions, the number of choices that a person makes Any guesses on how much it is? 70 years of decisions comes up to be about 1,788,500 decisions. I didn't get that off the top of my head. I wrote it down. I'm not a math guy. But that's a lot of decisions. And there was a 20th century philosopher named Albert, uh, uh, Albert Camus who said, Life is a sum of all your choices. Life is a sum of all of your decisions. And so if you consider that and you put all of those 1,788,500 choices together, essentially you discover who you are. You, You discover what types of artifacts you are leaving behind, what type of legacy is being forged in your life as you journey through this world. They all contribute to your legacy. And so the question I want us thinking about as we consider Abel's story is, will the artifacts of our choices reveal the legacy of a life lived by faith in Christ or by faith in self? Will the artifacts of our choices reveal the legacy of a life lived by faith in Christ or by faith in self? I believe this is the contrast we're going to see between Cain and Abel as we consider their story together. Now, the passage referred to in Hebrews 11 verse 4 is found in Genesis chapter 4. So if you would just hold your spot in Hebrews 11 and turn all the way back to the beginning of the Bible so that we can get a closer look at this story. All the way back to Genesis chapter 4. This is where the story of Cain and Abel is found. And and we're going to read the portion that is particularly significant for our study of 
of Hebrews chapter 11. Genesis chapter 4 comes on the hills of Genesis chapter 3, right? I'm not a math guy, but I figured that one out too. Genesis chapter 3 ended with Adam and Eve being exiled from Eden as a result of their sin. They chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, sin was ushered in. They get bought into the temptation that the serpent kind of whispered into Eve's ears. And, and both of them sinned against God. They were exiled. Consequences came. Sin, death the domain of darkness was ushered into the world and human beings were exiled from the immediate presence of God. But in Genesis chapter 4, we see that God didn't just kind of wipe the slate clean and start over. No, we see grace in Genesis chapter 4 in the sense that human beings would continue to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Life would continue on in the world that is. And God had a plan and a purpose for, of redemption that would be realized throughout the history of humanity. But Immediately after Genesis chapter 3 and you get into chapter 4, we learn that that's exactly what Adam and Eve begin to do. They, they are fruitful and start multiplying. They start making babies, right? And the first baby they have is a guy named Cain. And then they have another son. His name was Abel. So the oldest son was Cain. The younger son was Abel. And these two babies grew up into men. And when they grew up into adulthood, they took on jobs and occupation. And we learn in the passage that Cain became a type of gardener. He cultivated the earth in ways that were reminiscent of his father Adam, what he was doing in the Garden of Eden and what he presumably continued to do outside of Eden. Only this time, uh, when we cultivate the earth, the earth fights back, as we discovered in our study of these few chapters last year. But, so Cain would become a kind of a cultivator of the earth, a gardener of sorts. Abel, however, became a shepherd. And one day, these two guys decided they want to draw near to the Lord in worship. They wanted to bring some offerings to God. And, and I want you to see what goes down, beginning of verse 3, the, as we consider what they brought before God. In verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord, get this, had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So both of these brothers bring offerings to the Lord, and those offerings correspond with their noble occupations, one a gardener, one a shepherd. But as both of these sons are bringing their offering to the Lord, it says that the Lord received and regarded Abel's, but he did not receive or regard Cain's. And that's raised a lot of questions in our minds as we read that. Well, what's wrong with Cain's offering? What did he do wrong? Why would the Lord receive Abel's offering and not Cain's offering? And that's a question that scholars of the scriptures have been asking for centuries. And there's been a few answers uh, given. Some answers are kind of ridiculous. Some answers kind of carry a little more credibility and weight. I'll give you one that in my mind sounds kind of ridiculous. And it was posed by, posed by a guy named Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. In his, his take on it, the reason why God would accept Cain's and re, uh, accept Abel's and reject Cain's was that uh, what grows spontaneously is more appropriate than what has to be cultivated. So if you don't have to touch it or fix it or tweak it, then that's what God wants. But if you do have to cultivate it and fix it and tweak it, God doesn't want that. That was his take on that story. But then there was another take on the story that has a little, carries a little bit more credibility, and I'm sympathetic to this interpretation, although I do not square up with it entirely. And it is this idea that the reason God accepted Abel's offering as opposed to Cain's is because Abel's offering constituted a blood sacrifice. 
that he brought a sheep from his fold. Therefore, there was a sacrifice being paid and uh, being made. Blood was being shed. And so there are some who say Abel's sacrifice had blood involved. Cain's did not. And since Cain's offering was bloodless, then his offering was not regarded. Now, the reason why I'm sympathetic to that is because if you take into consideration the full gamut of the scriptures, there's a big emphasis put on the shedding of blood and atonement, right? The forgiveness of sins, being brought back into a right relationship with God, the entire sacrificial system of Israel, it hinders on this, the day of atonement where a lamb would be brought and sacrificed uh, on behalf of the nation of Israel. And all of that would kind of set a giant object lesson up so that we might understand what it is Jesus, the true lamb of God, would do for us when he goes to the cross. That when he shed his blood there, our sins are atoned for, our sins are covered, we are forgiven, we are cleansed. And so understand kind of the impulse of wanting to go towards that take on the reason why Cain's offering was rejected is because it had no blood in it. But I don't think that's what this passage, I don't think that's where we should really square up when we compare and contrast Cain and Abel in this story. My take on this text squares with John Calvin's take on this uh, text, a reformer, a theologian back from the 16th century, and, and his take was far more simple, and it was far more straightforward. He allowed Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, to shed light on the story in Genesis chapter 4. He allowed what is said straight, straight up in Hebrews 11, verse 4, to illuminate our understanding of this passage, and he says, well, the, different, the reason why Abel's sacrifice was accepted was because why? Because he brought it in faith. He came to the Lord by faith and offered a sacrifice better than Cain's. But then the question becomes, well, what what constituted his faith? What was the nature of Abel's faith? Like, why, why is it said that Abel had faith, but Cain did not? I mean, both of them brought offerings. And this is where you want to turn your attention to the details of Genesis chapter 4. Because I think the details that are provided to us in this passage illuminate for us the nature of Abel's faith in contrast to Abel's, uh, to Cain's activity, to Cain's offering. And I'll show this to you if you look at verse 3. Notice how Cain's offering is described. Cain's offering isn't described with any definitive articles. Cain's offering isn't described by any qualifiers or adjectives that would somehow set what he was bringing to the Lord apart from everything else in his possession or everything else in his life. All it says is simple, and it's a quite generic and common description. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's all it says. It says that he didn't bring the best of his Offering, he didn't say he it didn't it doesn't say he brought the best of the harvest or anything along those lines. It's just a common generic description. He brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. There's nothing uh, uncommon about it. But then when you turn your attention to Abel, what does it say about his? When it comes to Abel's offering, it says Abel also brought of what? Here's a definitive article: the firstborn. There's a qualifier, a descriptor: the firstborn of his flock. And of their fat portions. Their firstborn and the fatty portions. The best of the best. That's what Abel was bringing to the Lord. So Cain brought an offering that we might describe as common and generic. Abel brought an offering that represented his very best. It represented 
his heart, his desire for the God that he had come to worship in this story. So you consider how Cain offered what was common and generic, and if that is true, then that means that Cain may have kept the best for himself. So maybe as he approached the Lord in worship, his faith wasn't so much in God as much as it was in self, right? It's possible that Abel, when he was coming to the Lord, his faith wasn't in himself. He wasn't withholding from God. He was bringing his very best to the Lord. And it seems Abel's faith clearly was put in the Lord, but not just in the Lord. His faith was put in the promises of the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. If we're going to talk about leaving a legacy of faith, a faith that will speak from the grave, a faith that will outlive you and I in this world, then understand that a faith that will speak from the grave does not simply believe in God, but believes God. It's a faith that doesn't simply believe in God, but believes God. See, it is quite common and generic for people to believe in God. Chances are, every one of you believe in God in some discernible way. Now, we might not know exactly who that God is or what that God is like, but the fact that there's some being in the universe that we might call God, it is very common for people to believe in God. And if that understanding of God isn't like our understanding, it's common to believe in some kind of force or power that is unifying all of the universe and is somehow guiding or is maybe involved or maybe he's just removed, but there is some type of God that many people, it's quite common would do believe in. But what is less common, what is a bit more unique, isn't simply believing in God, but actually believing God. Do you hear the difference between the two? The difference between believing in God and actually believing the Lord. You see, Cain and Abel would have been told the story of what went down in the Garden of Eden. They would have learned from their mom and dad about how they were tempted by the serpent. And this serpent ruined everything by throwing and hurling these temptations towards them. And then they followed their desires for what he was offering them. And so they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They would have heard the story of why their parents were exiled from Eden. They would have heard how the Lord approached Eve and Adam as well as the serpent and laid out some consequences and They would have heard about why life is so frustrating in a fallen world as a result of everything that just broke down in Eden. They would have heard all of that, including Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, including the moment when the Lord would make a promise, and he would promise that there's coming a seed from the woman, and this seed is going to come into the world, and what's he going to do? He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to come and write everything that has been ruined as a result of sin, Satan, and death. They would have heard that promise. They would have heard this promise of grace that God was going to fix what Adam and Eve, in response to sin and temptation, ruined. And so what do you think that would have done to somebody's heart who's hearing that story, who's learning about this promise of God Well, for some, it would excite them. For some, it would delight them. Others, maybe not so much. And it seems as though there's a difference in the response Cain and Abel are giving to the promise they would have received from their mom and dad. Whereas Abel would approach the Lord with much delight, 
responding to this God of promise, responding to this God of grace by bringing his very best to the Lord. Cain does not. He doesn't respond with much delight. What is he doing? It seems as though Cain is only discharging a duty. It seems he's only going through the emotions. He's only doing what he thinks is enough to win some type of commendation from God. I think you have in Cain a common and generic approach to believing in God, whereas in Abel you have a wonderful portrait of what it means to actually believe God. The difference makes all the difference. Consider Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. You jump back to that chapter. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we are told that without faith, without faith, that is the type of faith that would characterize Abel's life, without that kind of faith, it is impossible to please God. For if anyone would come to him, he must do what? He must believe that God exists, but not just believe that God exists, check it out, but that he rewards those who seek him. It's not just believing in God generically. It's not just believing in God uh, in a common manner. He's saying, no, the, the type of faith that Abel is showing in this story is a type of faith that says, not only do I believe that my God exists, I believe my God is good. I believe in his promises of grace, so I'm going to seek him in light of those promises, and I'm going to seek him with my very best. In other words, God has captured Abel's heart. He's captured his affections in this this story. This is why Abel responds positively in Genesis chapter 4, while Cain is responding in a neutral fashion at best. At best, Cain's response is neutral. But again, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, by faith, therefore, Abel would offer up a better sacrifice than Cain. And then it would go on in that very next statement, through which Abel was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts. Abel was declared righteous as a result of his faith in God and in the God of promise. So if you're going to talk about a faith that will speak from the grave, I think it means it's a faith that doesn't simply believe in God, but actually believes God. It's a faith that says, I'm going to, I'm going to believe what you say you're going to do for your people. I'm going to believe in what you promise to do for us. That's where I'm putting my faith. I'm not just believing in you in a generic fashion. I'm believing in what you intend to do on behalf of those who've sinned against you. I'm going to trust in your grace. I'm going to trust in your mercy. I'm going to trust in your plan to send forth the seed from the woman to right every wrong. And as you go in that direction, understand that faith, not only does it not simply believe in God, but it believes God, a faith that will speak from the grave does not seek to earn God's commendation, but to receive God's commendation. The faith that will speak from the grave is a faith that is nurtured by the reality that I don't have to earn my God's commendation. I just simply receive it. God's made a promise. I'm believing it. There's commendation. That's the faith of Abel, in contrast to the faith of Cain. You see, it is common for those who may believe in God to think that they must earn God's commendation. That if anyone has some type of generic faith in God, it is quite common for that faith to be attached to this idea that if I'm going to 
be commended by this God, if I'm going to be accepted by this God, then I must do the right kind of thing. I must work really hard, be an upstanding citizen, make good decisions. And it's quite common for those who believe in God to think they must earn God's commendation. And I would argue one step further that not only is that common, in many ways, I would say it's actually preferable. I think that common and generic approach to God is preferred by many, many, many people in this city and many people in this world. You see, what happens if this is the equation, if this is how we approach the Lord, then all of a sudden we're free from not, we're not worried so much about giving God our best. We're just thinking about what, about giving God enough. Just give him enough. Just do a little bit. We're always looking for rules. We're always looking for boundaries. We're always looking for a quota. And if we can get those rules in place, those boundaries set, get that quota in our lives that we can meet and attain, then I'll know that that I've done my part. I've done enough. And I will expect God to treat me as I believe I deserve to be treated. This is not unlike a conversation that Timothy Keller had with a woman one day who grew up all of her life holding this common and generic view of God. A common and generic view that said, I believe in God and I believe that he'll accept me if I do enough good things and if I do what is right and kind of do my part in that regard. But then Keller began to explain to this lady about the gospel of grace, saying, you know, the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to uh, work for your commendation. You just receive it. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. Jesus has done everything necessary for us. He is the one that was promised to us, and he came to live and to die and to rise again. He began to explain the gospel to her, and and this is how she responded. I think she illustrates well this common, generic approach to God. She said that this new message about grace was very scary. And Keller asked why it was scary, and this is what she replied, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I'd just do just enough, right? I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, get this, if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. There's nothing he cannot ask of me. This is why I think this common approach that says, I'm going to believe in God and I'll just be a good person who will accept me, who will receive me. If I just kind of make a few offerings here and there, then I'll be good to go. I think that's more common and it's more preferable. The gospel of grace is radically different. The gospel of grace is radically different because the gospel of grace says that God has given his best to us in the sending of his son, Jesus, for us. And there is no response that you and I can give to the offering of Christ that could ever compare to what he's given to us or the offering he's made to us. But at the same time, because God has given his best to us in Jesus, what does that mean for us but that we respond the way Paul would tell us to respond in Romans chapter 12, verse 1? You have this moment where Paul's run through the gospel explaining grace and then he turns the corner. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of what Christ has done for you, what do you do? You offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
all of a sudden your response to God isn't, well, here's a little piece of me or here's a little part of me. And we're not negotiating with God and we're not figuring out, well, what is enough that I can give to God to kind of pass this test and be assured of this type of blessing in my life? No, it's what we're not asking those kinds of questions. We're just coming to him, responding positively to his promise, positively to his grace, positively to his gospel saying, take all of me. Not just a piece of me, not a part of me, all of me. Offering up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship. You see, God's promise of grace solicited Abel's desire to give his very best. His promise solicited that desire from Abel. Cain, however, he was more interested in a transaction His approach to the Lord was, if I do this, then I should get that. He was just giving enough. A transactional relationship with his God is what he desired. But you and I both know that God isn't interested in making transactions with you and me. He's not interested in a transactional relationship where you figure out what you're supposed to do in order to be saved or accepted or favored or commended. You understand that God gets no glory in that equation. The only person who would get glory in that reality is you because you would be making some payments. You would be accomplishing some goals. No, the God of grace gets all the glory for our redemption, all the glory for our acceptance because the God of grace, the God of promise says, just come to me. I will give you everything you need. And as he gives us everything we need, everything changes and all of a sudden our relationship with God isn't based on some man-centered human-centered transaction our relationship with God is dependent upon transforming grace promises that come to us with power promises that come to us freely promises that center on the sending of Jesus who would live and die and rise again and this reality really it does something to our hearts it affects us deeply when this takes root in us, we, we respond positively to this message. We respond positively to the reality of who Jesus is. And that's precisely what God wants, right? If you look back in Genesis chapter 4, there's an interesting flow in verse 4. There's a flow in verse 4 when, when in verse, yeah, at the end of verse 4, it says, And the Lord had regard, and notice this, the person is listed before the offering. And the Lord had regard for who? For Abel and his offering. Verse 5, the Lord had, had, did not have regard for Cain and his offering. The person precedes the offering in, that, in those sentences. And I think what we're being cued into there is that the sequence suggests, which we know to be true from elsewhere in Scripture, that it suggests that the type of offering isn't nearly as important as the attitude of the person making the offering. That the Lord assesses hearts, the Lord assesses thoughts, the Lord assesses intentions, the Lord discerns desires, the Lord goes after after the person. And when he goes after this person, our desires, our affections, we, we begin to respond positively, which is what his grace deserves. This is why God would say later in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But Cain's heart was not in Cain's heart, it seems, was not in it in this moment. He was bringing a common and generic 
offering that was flowing from a heart that was unmoved by the promise of God. And the reason why I think that's not an overstatement to say that is because when you keep reading the passage, Cain's true nature comes to, comes to fruition. Keep reading this story, beginning of verse 6. It says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, would you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Here, the Lord is giving Cain a word of warning. And in that warning, there is grace for Cain. See, Cain's looking at his brother and he's jealous of his brother thinking, well, the Lord accepted Abel's sacrifice. He must love him and not me. Or he may think that there's just enough grace to go around for one person and not for him. So maybe he thinks there's just not enough for him. And so he's angry. He's, his face has fallen. And here the Lord comes with a word of warning saying, Cain, be on guard with where your heart is right now. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It wants to destroy you. And then verse 8. Notice that Cain does not respond to the Lord's warning in that moment. He doesn't respond positively. Instead, he goes and he talks to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Get this. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The the blood of your brother Abel is crying to me from the ground. Cain murdered Abel out of jealousy, not understanding that there was enough grace to go around for both of them. But instead of heeding God's warning, he harbored envy, he harbored bitterness, he harbored resentment. And you and I both know that when you harbor bitterness, resentment, and envy, that just destroys people. It destroys the person who's harboring those thoughts and intentions, and it destroys the person that you are harboring them towards, which is why we want to check these all the time, which is why we want God to do a work in our hearts so that our hearts are not hospitable to those types of emotions and those types of reactions and those types of perspectives. We want our hearts to be inhospitable to bitterness and resentment and jealousy because all of that boils over and destroys Lies, And this comes to fruition when Cain would murder his brother and then it would ultimately destroy Cain's life as well. All throughout the storyline of the scripture, Cain is portrayed and referred to as an illustration of unbelief, as an illustration of unrighteousness, saying you don't want to go the way of Cain. You want to go the way of Abel. You don't want to be characterized by Cain's, what characterized Cain, this, this common this common generic faith in God that said, I'm just going to do enough to get what I think I should get from God. And when God doesn't come through, I get mad and I destroy everything. That's not the way you want to go. You want to go in the line of Abel, this one who received the promise of God, who responded positively to the promise of God, was commended, was declared righteous. And this is the one that though he was murdered, his faith continues to speak. His blood cried out from the ground in Genesis chapter 4. And then Hebrews chapter 11, it's still speaking as his faith, the legacy he left behind is still being used by God to impact and shape and inspire other believers of God. So if you want to talk about a faith that will speak from the ground, you're talking about a faith that doesn't just believe in God, but actually believes God. You're talking about a faith that doesn't seek to earn God's commendation, but simply receives it on the basis of his grace and his promise. But then there's one other dynamic. A faith that will speak, to the, that will speak from the grave will be ultimately vindicated by God. A faith that will speak from the grave will be vindicated by God. 
Abel died in Genesis chapter 4. He did not live very long. He was murdered by his brother because his brother was jealous of his righteousness. His brother was jealous of his faith. His brother was jealous of the fact that God received his offering. And what you find in Abel is the first person in a long line of men and women whose lives would be taken from them as the result of the faith they lived by in their God. The faith they had, long line, the first of a long line of whom we would refer to as martyrs, right? Those who would bear witness to the faithfulness of God by not only living towards that which God promised them, but lived in light of it so much so that they would risk their lives and they would, they would step into dangerous situations and circumstances to carry out their faith and to care for other people. And in the process of doing so, other people do not always respond positively. Other people can sometimes respond like Cain did and they can rise up in anger and fear and resentment and put them to death. Men like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, Nate Saint who's Quote from his son you read earlier who went to the jungles of Ecuador to bring the gospel to an unreached tribal people. And this tribe was notorious for uh, being a closed off group that had never been successfully penetrated by any person outside of their tribe and outside of their, uh, their family line. And, and here come these five guys from America, from the United States, seeking to make contact to bring the gospel to them, believing that God loves them and that Jesus sent his son to die for them. And they step into the jungles of Ecuador only to meet the end of a spear as all five of these men in their late 20s would be speared to death by this tribe they were seeking to, to love and to lead into recognition of Jesus' love for them. And you're wondering, well, is, that, is there any justice in someone's life being taken so young for that type of reason? Is there any vindication for guys like that and ladies like that who've died in similar circumstances throughout the history of the church? And what we learn from Genesis chapter 4 and what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 11 is that there's absolutely, there's absolute vindication for those types of people. The faith that speaks from the grave will be vindicated. If you give your life believing God, not just believing in him, if you give your life recognizing that your commendation comes from God and you don't really need it from any other person, place, or thing, you give your life to that reality, all of a sudden, the Lord is going to lead you to make decisions that may seem crazy. He's going to lead you to go places that may be difficult. He's going to lead you to do things that may be challenging. He may even lead some of you to step across a culture and be met with the end of a spear. But understand that if that is your fate, if you die living that kind of faith, understand that your death will be vindicated. There is a day. There is a day when the one, Jesus, that God sent that God would send into the world. There's coming a day when the, the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah would set everything right. There's a powerful picture of this in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where you get this passage where the souls of the martyrs are crying aloud for vindication. They're crying aloud for justice. They, they're wanting God to fulfill his promises to them. And they are told in that passage, just wait until the full tale of martyrs is complete. One day they will be vindicated. And he assures them they did not die in vain. The faith of Abel reminds us that if we die, we do not die in vain. If we are murdered because of our faith, we will not die in vain. Why? Well, it's because when one day... The one greater than Abel will come and he will do all the things that he promised to do. One day, the one greater than Abel would 
come. And you and I know that as Abel was looking forward to this promised one, you and I are in a sense looking backward to this promised one who would step into this world and he too would be murdered by unrighteous people. He too would be killed. He too would be railed against. And we are told in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 that his blood would speak a far better word than Abel's. Whereas Abel's blood is crying out for vindication, Jesus' blood is vindicating. Whereas Abel's blood is still looking for, for vindication and justice, Jesus died and shed his blood so that, so that God's justice may be satisfied and people like you and I may be cleansed and forgiven and reconciled so that our hearts might swell with joy and gratitude in response to Jesus who fulfilled the promises of God. And he's still fulfilling the promises of God. And he's doing so on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of your good works. And so when you and I begin to think about this Jesus, all of a sudden we're responding by offering up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to our God, which is our spiritual worship. And as we press into that reality, a legacy begins to be carved out It begins to be forged. All of a sudden, we find ourselves thinking about these questions and not being intimidated by them, but instead being excited by them. Here they are again. When you and I recede from this world, what artifacts will you leave behind? Does that type of question intimidate you or excite you? What choices are you making today that testify to the fact that your faith is in Christ? that you are believing God, you are trusting his promises, that you are commended by God? What choices are you making today that will carve out a legacy of faith in Christ? My hope and my prayer is that the Hallows Church would be filled with men and women whose lives would carve out these types of legacies, men and women whose faith would continue to speak far after we're gone, far after we leave this world. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, would you please, by your grace, produce these types of truths within us? Would your grace transform us into believing people, into men and women who walk by faith, men and women who believe your promises, who live out the things you have promised to us and all that you've revealed about who Jesus is and what Jesus desires and what Jesus will do again in the future. Give us grace to believe Jesus and to regulate our lives according to that which we believe. God, I pray that we would make choices every day that would testify to the fact that our faith is in Christ and our faith is not in ourselves. Jesus, you are worthy of such choices. You are worthy of such living and I pray that we would that we would be that. Would you remind us every day that the world is our altar and our lives are our sacrifice. And so we offer up our lives to you as a spiritual worship. God, we love you and we pray that you would do this type of work in Jesus' name, amen.